Hi, my name is Fiona Zeiger and you're listening to The Migration Podcast. When we think of migration, we immediately think of space, but time plays a crucial role as well. Think of the temporal limitations of a visa or of cross-border mobilities as part and parcel of someone's professional and personal career. Jolena Zinnanen spoke to Shanti Robertson about her new book, Temporality in Mobile Lives, and about the development of Shanti's intellectual project. Welcome to today's episode of the Migration Podcast. Today, I feel very lucky to be speaking to Shanti Robertson. So Shanti is a sociologist. She specializes in migration, youth studies, and urban social change. And today we're going to be talking about her recent projects, as well as her brand new book. Thanks, Jelena. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. So, Shanti, firstly, um, you have conducted extensive research on um, social change based in urban areas and how different kinds of regimes of mobility related to visas and migration policies affect different kinds of migration experiences in Australia. What is some of the background behind these interests for you? Um, have they come about from scholarly interest, personal experience, or a bit of both? So, yeah, I just wanted to hear a bit about you and you know, how you and your experiences have informed your research. Absolutely. So it's probably a little bit of a combination of both. Uh, if we go way back into ancient history prior to my PhD, what I was doing professionally at that time, I'd actually just come back from overseas, come back from a working holiday, and I was living in Melbourne. And I was an English language teacher. So I taught English for academic purposes for international students who were heading to study at Australian universities. And while I was doing that job, I would chat to my students who were all in Australia on student visas and a lot of them would say, if I said, oh, why are you doing this accounting degree? Why do you want to go on to study accounting after this English course? And they would say, well, for PR, permanent mm -hmm. residency. This really sparked a little bit of thinking for me because I thought, well, this kind of overseas student experience is so different from the exchange that I did in Europe as an mm -hmm. undergraduate or the working holiday and backpacking around Europe that I did in my early 20s. This is really a migration pathway, not mm -hmm. just a student experience. And it was, I guess this was sort of back when policies that were linking international education and school migration were really new. They were very much in their infancy and no one was really doing much research about it. So that's what I did with my PhD. I got a scholarship and I looked at those intersections between international education and school migration and these kind of very long, protracted and extended migration pathways that young people were undertaking in Australia. Mm -hmm. And I guess there was also a bit of reflection there on how different this experience of migration to Australia was from the migration histories in my own family because my mother's a migrant, a skilled migrant, but she arrived in Australia in the 1970s mm -hmm. when all of the conditions and the policies were really radically different. We barely had any temporary entrance. Nearly everybody that was coming to Australia was going to be granted permanent residency pretty much immediately. Mm -hmm. So I really started thinking about how Australia was grappling socially and politically with this new influx of temporary migrants and what that was kind of doing to our urban spaces, to our labour markets and to people's everyday experiences of migration as well. Um, and I think I've been really interested in just contemporary migration conditions, how changing migration regimes really shape that everyday experience of what it's like to be a migrant in different contexts. Yeah. And for that generation of international students, around what time frame was that? 
So I started my PhD in 2005. Oh, okay. So yeah, um, yeah, Australia, because my parents were also um, skilled migrants in the 80s. Um, so yeah, huge difference between mm-hmm. the 70s, 80s, and then yeah, to mm-hmm. like the early 2000s mm-hmm. and changes to um, international education in Australia as well. Absolutely. And it was changing our cities at the time as well. I mean, I saw during my time in Melbourne how kind of radically parts of Melbourne transformed because of the international student population, bringing different cultures, different forms of consumption, different ways of living in the urban environment, different temporal rhythms. And so that was kind of a core interest in some of my research post-PhD is how do these new kinds of migrant mobilities impact on local Yeah. Um, Given this uh, extensive background, would you mind telling me a bit about the current projects you're working on and how has your previous work, how has that informed the project's development? Gosh, that's such a great question, isn't it? (laughs) Really thinking about the heritage of your thinking and your ideas. So there are three major projects that I'm working on at the moment. So the first project, which is with my collaborators, Professor Anita Harris and Professor Loretta Baldassar, That is probably um, quite a specific lead on from my earlier work because that project is looking at youth mobility. So it's looking at young people coming both into Australia and also Australian young people who leave Australia and who are travelling for any of these kind of blended purposes around work, study, cultural experience. So we're really thinking about this life stage between 18 to 30, how significant transnational mobility often is during this life stage and what some of the different long-term impacts this has on different categories of youth. So, you know, young Australians going and doing their best in in London or New York, how is that experience different from a Chinese international student who Mm -hmm. might be coming to Australia with some of the same kinds of aspirations and plans and how do those actually play out? Uh, The other two projects I'm working on, one really carries on from my interest in how migration and new forms of migration transform local places, and that is the Civic Sinoverbia project. So that project is looking at practices of everyday citizenship. So how do people start to build a sense of community belonging and political belonging at that level of the suburb? Mm -hmm. And we're really interested in new patterns of migration from China to Sydney, So we're looking at three suburbs in Sydney that have very high percentage of residents with Chinese heritage. So in these three suburbs, it's between 40 and 50% of residents have either migrated from China or have Chinese heritage. But there's a real mix Mm -hmm. because Sydney has a long history of Chinese migration. So there are people in these communities that uh, second and third generation, you know, arrived during those earlier waves of migration from China in perhaps the 80s. And then there's a group of new Chinese migrants that have arrived since the turn of the century from the PRC. And they often have a very different type mm-hmm. of migration experience, a very different orientation around Chinese identity. So what we're doing is we're looking at these everyday community spaces within suburbs. So your community gardens, your mm-hmm. halls clubs, yeah. community centres, the local school and the PNC committee. And we think, okay, how are these local suburban spaces of civic practice, how are they adapting and changing with mm-hmm. these new demographics and what's really going on at that everyday local level to understand how people are practising civic inclusion? So my final project is called the ADEPT project, which stands for Autonomy, Disability and Diversity, Everyday Practices of Technology. So we're looking at the intersections of disability and cultural and linguistic diversity and what bearing that potentially has on people's use 
of these emerging technologies, looking at how these technologies can facilitate uh, new modes of communication, new modes of social inclusion, but also what some of the risks, barriers and limitations are. So Mm -hmm. we're working very closely there with both tech partners and with sector organisations in the disability and migration services space to ensure that from that project the outcomes are very much applied and focused on what local organisations and communities can really do to reap the best benefits of this next kind of technological revolution. I just have a question about the second project that Mm. you mentioned. I think it links to the first project as well. Um, It's come up a few times in migration research and it has uh, come up in one of the conversations, previous conversations in this series with um, Loretta Baldassar, who you've worked with, you're working with, who has also done longitudinal research with transnational migrants. Mm. With these sorts of studies with temporary migrants, Mm. how do you do a longitudinal study with people who are essentially mobile? Yeah, that's a really tricky question. So I'll actually, yeah, talk a little bit about the youth mobilities work there. Um, I mean, it, it is quite difficult with the kind of sampling we're doing as well because we're not just looking at people from, the, particularly with the outgoing group, people leaving Australia, they could be going anywhere. So our sample of target research participants are really dispersed yeah. throughout the world and they're also going to move over yeah. time. I think with that project, what really makes it work is the fact that we're talking about young people, we're talking about mostly young people from middle-class backgrounds Mm -hmm. and young people who are travelling and on the move. And so they are very connected via technology. They use a lot of digital platforms to kind of stay engaged and connected. And so that means as researchers we can also use those digital modes of communication to keep in touch with them. Yeah. So the majority of our interviews have actually been done um, via Zoom or other forms of teleconferencing software rather than Mm -hmm. face-to-face. And in general we're keeping up with our participants. Yeah. Um, via digital modes of communication. We recruited very heavily via social media as well. Yeah. So for that particular kind of group, um, that's been the most effective way to, to recruit participants and to maintain those relationships. And, I mean, ultimately with COVID and with the research team also spread across different states in Australia, we would have had to look yeah. at digital methods anyway because we started our field work basically yeah. during COVID. So... It's been productive in a lot of ways. I think particularly for people in this age group and particularly post-pandemic, there's nothing foreign or strange about having a conversation that largely happens online. I think that division between saying a truly natural ethnographic environment has to be Mm -hmm. face-to-face, I think that's really breaking apart a little bit. I'm very interested in the way that you talk about the different kinds of temporalities, not only with the um, individuals who are the participants in your research and that the fact that they will move over time, but also methodologically in conducting interviews. Mm. Um, I imagine that conducting an interview at the start of the pandemic with someone is quite different from conducting an interview with someone, say, in September last year when, um, yes, the, the, the temporal lifespan of, of the um, online interview and how that's changed absolutely would be fascinating to look yeah. at in the data. I mean, that's also been uh, changing really even in a very live way as we've been collecting the data. So the people that we sort of interviewed at the very beginning compared to the people that we interviewed towards the end as we were building the sample, there's quite different conditions going on there. So, you know, people at the beginning of the pandemic, there was still 
I guess, a bit of an uncertainty and a sense that maybe things would resolve themselves a lot more quickly. Um, You know, really getting towards the end of last year with some of the interviews, people were in a very different space with it. Yeah. So, for example, you know, to give one example, we interviewed a young woman who was from Melbourne. Yeah. And she had moved to regional Italy. And despite the fact that Italy got a really bad first wave of the pandemic, by the time we interviewed her, things were so much worse for her friends and family back in Melbourne because yes. they were all in lockdown. <laughs> so she was feeling yeah. an enormous sense of relief that she built this life somewhere where she still had that local freedom of mobility. Yeah. Um, you know, she was feeling really grateful that she wasn't dealing with what her friends and family back in Melbourne were dealing with. And she was thankful that she had made the decision to stay and hadn't just decided to come home. Well, that brings us to some of the core themes that I think you explore in your book, which I would love to hear you talk about. Um, So you've just had uh, your new book come out, Temporalities and Mobile Lives, Contemporary Asia-Australian Migration and Everyday Time. So in the book, you introduce a way of thinking about how restrictions, well, you know, segue from one kind of restrictions to another, um, how restrictions such as temporary visas create a kind of like time logics mm. for young middle-class people who have relocated from Asia to Australia for a number of reasons. The way that you use this framework um, about time and mobilities, uh, would you mind speaking a bit more about that? So the time, the, the sort of time logics and how it's useful for thinking about experiences of migration. Can you walk us through that a bit? I could definitely walk you through it. So I guess conceptually I've been really interested in temporality and migration for quite a long time. And the project that the book is based on was really trying to empirically unpack this connection between lived time and migration and transnational mobility. Mm -hmm. So I developed a framework which I call chrono-mobilities, and Mm -hmm. it's a big word, but really what it's just trying to express is to centre the temporal as well as the spatial Mm -hmm. where we think about people's mobility experiences and to think about what specific experiences of time are actually produced by people's mobility. Uh, What I was really interested in exploring is what I call time regimes. So these are these sort of macro or meso global or national temporal formations that are kind of going to impact on people's mobility. So For example, in the Australian context, the temporary visa regime, the Mm -hmm. visa expiry date that everybody's dealing with, that's an example of a time regime that's going to impact on people's decisions in their everyday lives. And then the time logics is just those different dimensions of the everyday experience of of time, experience of time that are very cultural and very social. So just to give an example, because it sounds really quite complicated, but one of the experiences that's really sharp for these Asian young people who come to Australia is they're not just moving through space. They're also moving into different cultural structures of time. Mm -hmm. If you're grown up in a city like Taipei or Shanghai and you come to somewhere like Melbourne, there's actually a completely different temporal logic Mm -hmm. that structures the life of that city and a different rhythm. If your visa requires you to go and work in a regional area, for example, and you end up in a regional town in Australia, then you're dealing again with a completely different local cultural temporality and so part of your journey and your adjustment as a migrant it's not just about moving into a different space it's about moving into a different time yeah and how you kind of negotiate and reconcile that and then alongside that you might be trying to make decisions about your life about your career about your relationship when you've got this visa expiry date that's coming up in one year or two years or however long yeah and with the immigration system often you have to meet particular criteria and develop 
particular qualifications or particular durations of work experience in order to qualify for the next visa. So there's also a racing against the clock. So I looked at sort of three dimensions of that across the book. I looked at careers. Uh, Another chapter was really looking at people's relationships to place. So very much this idea of, you know, how does time shape your experience of place? And when you move through these different social and cultural temporalities, how do you reflect on them and how does that become part of your experience? And there was lots of really interesting stuff in there about the kind of slow times yeah. of Australia, yeah. uh, you know, our slow internet connectivity, <laughs> the way we go to bed very early yeah. in the evenings yeah. and how that sort of shaped people's experiences. Um, and then the final chapter was about intimate relationships. So that was a very interesting finding of the project. But again, at that life stage in your 20s, you're moving around the world, you're moving for study or you're moving for work, but you are inevitably forming relationships falling in love Mm -hmm. and sometimes ending up in a situation where those relationships have to be negotiated alongside the structures of the migration regime. Yeah. And that there are different cultural temporalities of intimacy and biography and life as well. A very quick example there is for some of the young women that I spoke to, particularly from countries like China, coming to Australia was this sort of period of suspension and Mm -hmm. timeout and a way for them to delay the pressure to get married or have children by a particular age. So they would say things like, if I was still in China, the pressure would so be on by 26, 27 to settle down, get married and have children. Because I've come to Australia, I'm still working on my master's degree, I'm focused on getting my permanent residency, I've created this incredible zone of suspension where I can delay some of those pressures around this life course temporality. Listening to you speak about it, I'm just hearing also the mirror opposite of what, you know, we're sort of going through with this pandemic of um, the temporality, sort of the slowing down Mm -hmm. and the, uh, you know, caused by the immobility and how Mm -hmm. some of these aspirations have maybe been put on hold or where suspension kind of takes a second sort of form of life in the current situation. And it's been very interesting, you know, releasing a book during the pandemic that was written and researched pre-pandemic. And Mm. I think for me, one thing that the pandemic has done is it has dragged these border temporalities into everybody's lives. So now this sense of suspension, this sense of uncertainty of not knowing when you're going to be able to cross the border to see your family, that's just become a lived reality for all of us. You don't have to be a temporary migrant or on a visa or have had a migration experience to be experiencing these border temporalities currently. It's been in a way quite surprising to me in Australia with the closure of internal borders, just how shocked and appalled Australian citizens have been by the power of the state to deny them access to cross the border. You know, my family's in Western Australia. Yeah. And, you know, that that tension for people who live on the East Coast and haven't been able to go back and see their families Mm -hmm. out West. And people have been so shocked and surprised that at the kind of inhumanity of this border Mm -hmm. closure and the denial of their rights to see their family. And, of course, you know, when you're a migration scholar, you think, well, borders have always done this. They just haven't personally affected you. So it's been interesting to kind of reflect there and to see conversations about what a border really is and Mm -hmm. about the power of the state in constructing, again, it's a temple, instantaneously as well, Mm -hmm. uh, closing borders, keeping them closed, not telling anyone when they're going to open again. 
So I think, yeah, the temporalities of the border have just become big. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and become something that everybody's experiencing at the moment. Shanti, you've given us so much to think about from this episode and we will definitely be looking up your book, which we will have linked on the website. So thank you so much for speaking with me today. I will be walking away with plenty to think about. Shanti Robertson is an Associate Director at the Insight Centre and a Research Fellow at the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University.